You're listening to Father Kirby Longo's Homilies, powered by Mountain Catholic. Father Kirby is a priest of the Roman Catholic Diocese of Helena and pastor of Christ the King University Parish in Missoula, Montana. Okay, we got... To be honest, uh, I've never dug deeply into Lumen Gentium specifically until preparing for this course, and I didn't realize the breadth of what it covered. And so I think we're going to, I mean, hopefully hopefully we'll make it through this document. We'll, we'll do our best, and then what we can't uh, cover here, we will, uh, I might just have to leave up to you. We might cover some of it uh, in the following one, but I do want to leave at least one session for Gaudium et Spes, and then one for Sacrosanctum Concilium, and then a final session to just sort of talk about the church today after Vatican II, what that looks like, and how to move forward. So we'll see what we can get through uh, in this document today. It is a large document, and a lot of it goes into just the the whole second half is basically the hierarchical structure of the church. Uh, so I don't know if there's necessarily as many uh, specific topics to look into there. The, but the first portion does cover a lot of things that are worth digging into. Just it opens a lot of discussions that I think are worthwhile that uh, I think will be more than enough for us in this hour. And so uh, I think first we should maybe just try to bring closure to and, and maybe dig in deeper into a little more specifically the uh, what we opened up last week, which is that eighth, eighth paragraph of Lumen Gentium about the salvation or salvation outside the church is what it's really pushing into and beyond that one paragraph it goes more deeply into what that looks like specifically for different groups outside of the church what that looks like for each person so I think we can dig into that more first, and then we can move into some of the other topics. So we'll jump around a little bit for this first portion, and then we'll come back and look more systematically through it. So that eighth paragraph raises, it says that the church in its fullness and the truth that God has revealed in its fullness subsists in the Catholic Church. And so what does that mean? There's a great little portion from in this commentary from the CDF under John Paul II, which the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith is was under John Paul II. It was run by Ratzinger, who went on to become Benedict XVI. And so he, in many ways, the, the different answers to questions, the way the CDF works is, either some group of bishops or some individual Catholic or some theological commission will propose a question to the church on some particular topic. And it's almost like different courts. There's different hierarchical courts in the church. And if a question is not clarified by any of the lower courts, it works its way all the way up to this Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. And then it's answered by the CDF. And the answers that come from the CDF are usually sort of signed off on by the Holy Father or not signed off on and then go go back to be discussed more. And if they are signed off on 
then it's sort of like the church speaking on that particular question. And a question, specifically the question from paragraph 8 of Lumen Gentium was proposed to the CDF. Like Basically the question was, what does this mean? Uh, and uh, Because after the council you get a variety of different interpretations of that, some of which mean we're, we're saying this has said nothing new, uh, you have to be, in a sense, a member of the Roman Catholic Church, uh, in communion with the Roman Catholic Church, have the fullness of faith to go to heaven, I mean, for salvation. And then others were saying, no, what this is saying is that being a Christian in general is, is you know, puts you on the road to salvation. And then others were saying, no, by means of the Catholic Church, all people are brought to salvation, and so they were taking a more universalist view, which is problematic in its own right. So let's. So then it's sort of like, CDF, please flush this out. And there was a great, I think they, the answer was kind of what we discussed last week, but digs into this tension really well. So the document basically says, the church Christ founded exists fully in the Catholic Church. So the fullness of truth is revealed within the Catholic Church. Yet, there's division in the church, and that division is, uh, I mean, I don't want to say legitimate, but it exists. So we, we hope for no division, and perhaps someday we'll all come back into total unity, but as of right now, there is division, and we have to acknowledge that. And within that division, there are like, truly baptized the baptism of other Christian churches is legitimate. It's Trinitarian. And from this, you know, you get different things like, does the Mormon church, when they baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, mean the same thing as the Catholic church? No, they don't. Uh, after many discussions with the Mormon church, we've, we've puzzled that out, and, and so therefore, that's not an authentic baptism. That doesn't, that doesn't in some ways change this teaching, but there is, you know, I was baptized Methodist. I was legitimately baptized in the Methodist church. And so therefore, I am a Christian who's on the road to salvation. But what does that mean as opposed to being a Catholic? Um, what's the difference there? What What's good and what isn't good about that? So there's division, and it exists, and yet there's obviously sanctification happening outside of the Catholic Church. And so one of the sort of quotes from this that's worth remembering is it says, many elements of sanctification and of truth are found outside the visible structures of the church. We see that. It seems obvious. You know, there's fruit in those different places. And then kind of the final, the final line there is that they derive their efficacy so that fruit, even in the Methodist church I grew up in, is the result of grace that is manifest from the Catholic church. So the grace of the church isn't only found within the church. We see examples of this even as early as the Gospels themselves. When, when they're, they're going along the way, and I think it's James and John in particular, come across someone who's preaching the gospel and preaching it rightly 
but is not a part of their group. And it's a really interesting situation when they say, they say, Lord, this man's preaching the gospel and he's not, he's not a member of our movement, of the way. Should we silence him? And Jesus says, no. Those who aren't against us are for us. If you can't, you can't preach the gospel and yet be against the gospel. Uh, so there's already in the time of Jesus' life, there's already those preaching the gospel who aren't members of the way. And as early as really right around the Council of Nicaea and just after the Council of Nicaea, you get the Homoousians, who are the uh, Cyril of Alexandria, had a different interpretation of the wording of the Trinity than many of the other church fathers. And so as the result of those who were influenced by him, there was already a schism in the fourth century. And a whole portion of Christians broke off from the church. They had legitimate sacraments, they had legitimate bishops, and yet they were seen to be in schism with the church. The church always acknowledged that they were legitimate Christians, but that they were not in full union. And that's happened at multiple times throughout history. Uh, obviously the Great Schism in 1054, and then the Protestant Reformation in 1517 through really 1530-40, when many of those different churches formed. The difference in the Protestant Reformation is that you, for the first time, get churches that reject certain sacraments and that define themselves in opposition to the Catholic Church, as opposed to like the Homoousian Cyrillian Christians, which re reserved all the sacraments intact, as well as the as well as the uh, Eastern Orthodox Church, which still a thousand years later has legitimate ordinations of priests, legitimate uh, apostolic succession. Many of the churches that broke off in the Protestant Reformation rejected ordination per se. They rejected many of the really uh, core doctrines of the church. And, and so they're in communion in a different way, or they're, they're in schism in a different way than those earlier churches. And that's why we have to formulate this in a, in a way that's, we have to dig in a little deeper than just saying like, they're a portion of the church that is not in full communion. So the, you know, MAC, Missoula Alliance Church, is in a slightly different relationship to the Catholic Church than the Greek Orthodox Church down the road because they're, they have, they stand in a different way in relationship to the truths of the Catholic faith. They have substantially different beliefs from one another and therefore... They, they sit in different relationship to the church. And so we have to actually dig into these truths more concretely. Um, and so we'll, we're, we're going to jump forward from paragraph 8 to 14 because it uh, we can dig in more, more concretely to different churches and then their relationship back to the uh, Catholic church. So paragraph 14 begins by saying, uh, I guess in these paragraphs we're discussing, you could say, the ordinary means of salvation. What ordinary means is like, for us growing up as Catholics, uh, or for you who grew up as Catholics, or for anyone who grows up as Catholic, I guess I, I didn't really, but the, 
What does it mean to be on the road to salvation? So first it says, baptism is necessary for salvation. It says, through baptism, as through a door, we enter the church. Whosoever, therefore, knowing that the Catholic Church was made necessary by Christ, would refuse to enter or remain in it, could not be saved. So that's like saying, like, I know... When you think of apostasy, which is the denying of the faith, this, this would be sort of the, the teaching for that. Like, I know the Catholic Church is the one true church, and I reject it. That would be someone who's an apostate. The denying of our faith, whether that's just out of weakness, from pressure, or whether that's out of some falling out with the church, uh, or, or just even a relational thing, like, I don't like my church, and I'm going to leave. Uh, that's, that's the, that would be an apostate, someone who knows the truth and rejects the truth. Now, that person is in a different... That, that's, that's a very particular relationship to the church. There's repentance that would be necessary in that person's relationship there in order to come back into union uh, because they're, they're aware of the truth and they've rejected the truth. Now, obviously, if they've rejected it, they don't think it's the truth. So there's obviously going to be complexity on the individual level there. But that's the, that would be a sort of, you're on the ordinary road. You're, on, you're in the church, and then you reject the church. That's one place. And then, I guess, I guess I can come at it from the other direction, which would be like my story, and then I, I have a professor from seminary who had a really interesting experience of this. So as I was sort of exploring different churches, having grown up Methodist and then seeing the Methodist church begin to change rapidly depending on who, who the pastor was or, uh, and even just seeing the Methodist church at large begin to fracture, I, I began to explore other roads and came to basically discover that there was one church for a thousand years and really one core gospel being lived out for 1500 or so and and that there was a continuity there from the beginning all the way up until now and it existed in the Catholic Church and so I had this sort of moment of realization when I realized that the one true church was the Catholic Church and that I was not in full communion with that church and it was that sort of intellectual truth that hit me that then brought about a spiritual exploration that led to a conversion. I had a, I had a professor who said he was, he was, he grew up Anglican, he's English, grew up in England as an Anglican, or kind of more as like a communist, in a communist family that had broken from the Anglican church, so they weren't really going anywhere, but they considered themselves vaguely Anglican um, because it's a social identity as well as a religious identity. And he remembers reading Thomas Aquinas as like a 13-year-old. He's a brilliant guy. <laughs> uh, and, and when he came to this sort of like salvation in and outside the church, which was much more sort of black and white in Thomas Aquinas, and he realized, he said he realized at one point that he was destined for hell. And now this is like a 13-year-old kid who's reading this, and, and he's like, I am not in the church, and therefore I am not on the road to salvation, and I must become Catholic. And so it was like the opposite road, where he's like, 
I need to do this. And then he, and then he grew in intellect and in prayer and all that and realized some nuances there. But he, but he had this sort of moment where he realized, like, this is the church that Christ founded. And if, I, if, if I'm going to enter into relationship with God, I should probably do it in the way that he asks me to do it. You know, in the way that he wants me to do it in order that I can flourish uh, fully. And so he became Catholic. And uh, so that's, that's the sort of ordinary road. Now, we realize that in the world, there's an, it's an infinitely more complex place. And also God is infinite and can sort of manifest his, himself in different ways to different people at different times. And so he's not, although we are limited to what he has revealed, and therefore he's set forward, he's set forth a path, this door into the church. And and this is the limits of our knowledge, but it's not the limits of God. So in that sense, like we we put limits on ourselves, but we cannot put limits on God. And, and that's so that's kind of how the church has come to see it. We have no clue what God can do, nor what he is doing in the hearts of those who aren't in full communion with the church. We can't judge that. But, so then the exploration into this is sort of a, uh, a how, how, what can we say on these things? What do we know about salvation outside the church? And what can we say confidently about what, from what God has revealed to us? First, I guess for those of us in the church, it's not, I think when we say, when we talk about this topic, we often start to think like, well, does that mean it's just sort of a lottery and you win if you grow up Catholic? Like, that's the, that's the tendency. It's like, so some, you almost get into this weird predestination road if you, if you take it to without nuance, because you start to think, well, no, this person just happened to grow up Catholic and so they won the lottery and then this Hindu over here in India, what, what, what about them? You know, they just lose the lottery and they don't, they're not on the road to salvation. That's not, that's not even the truth for us, first of all, because, so it says here, I think it's in, uh, what paragraph is it? I think it's still in 14, actually. It says that it does, just, just being Catholic in a, in a literal sense, like being baptized and growing up and, and just, like living that in a non-intentional way isn't salvation in itself. It says, being a part of the body is not enough. We must persevere in charity. And that, that we must be sons and daughters of the church in heart and not just in word. So being Christian isn't like... Isn't like... Uh, I mean, for example being Muslim. So whereas is, Islam is a very, it's, a, it's an orthopraxic religion in that the practices of Islam are, are the things that bring about salvation. So the disposition of your heart isn't necessarily the, the road to salvation. It's the, it's the being diligent in practice. And now that's not a nuanced way of looking at Islam in the sense that what they believe is that living out these practices that you must live out is going to bring about a certain disposition of the character. So you are 
you are guaranteed salvation by living out the practices because they're going to bring about a certain character. That's the, that's the sort of road for them. Whereas with us, persevering in charity means that the disposition of your heart manifests in certain acts. So it's sort of the flip of that. Like, when we have faith, our faith is going to manifest in works. The works themselves aren't the things that bring about salvation. We can't win our salvation by doing certain works. However, if we love the Lord, we're going to serve the Lord. That's, I mean, we're going to enter into a relationship with, with him. What does that relationship mean? It means that we serve the poor. It means that we love our brothers and sisters as we love ourselves. It means that we worship him because we love him. And so it's bringing about a certain, the relationship brings about a certain lifestyle. And if the lifestyle isn't manifest, then that means that our relationship is obviously not in the right place. But the relationship is at the core. So if we love the Lord, we will live in a certain way. Um, if we live in that way, but we live it out of a sort of servile fear or or a sort of almost a sort of like hedging of our bets. If you know this, if you know the story of Cyrus, uh, the king of Persia, when he lets the Israelites go back after the exile. So Cyrus comes in, he conquers Babylon, and then says, "All right, Israelites, go back to Israel and build a temple." Uh, and his reason for that is that he he doesn't know which god is the real god, but he's going to do his best to let everyone live their religion and pray for him so that no matter who's right, he gets in. You know, like, so, he, yeah, he's like, you know, if the Israelites are right, then I just did a great deed for them and, you know, I'm going to heaven. If, you know, this little village that we took into exile, if their God is the true God, then I'm still in because I'm going to let them go back. And, you know, so re- really, in the end, there's an interesting character in Cyrus that, you know, <laughs> to, I wouldn't be surprised if I actually saw Cyrus in heaven when I went up there. But the, but the, uh, that's, if we live like that, like, I'm going to live the gospel because it might be true. And if it is true, then I'm good. That's, that's not what the Lord is asking us to do. Um, so that our intention matters, which is a sort of, it's a unique thing in you could say the history of religion for not only your actions to matter but the intentions you have when you perform those actions to matter uh, it'd be like I mean in a relationship with your spouse if if you were well aware that your spouse didn't love you but they just did all those things anyways you know they they were they were a good spouse but you could tell that they just despised you it would never it would it would not be the same if, in, if their heart wasn't there, but they were just living it out of some duty, that, that would obviously not be a good and healthy marriage. Now, there's, there's probably portions of your life in which you're just going through some struggle or another in which you just, because you love them, even if you're not feeling it during that time, even if you're in some serious turmoil in your marriage, you do it anyways. And that's good. That's actually a good thing. But the... The love has to be there in order for fruit to be born. It can't just be a sort of cold, servile relationship. 
And so we see that in our human relationships, and that's the sort of relationship that God wants. So that's in the Christian context. If we're on the road to salvation, it's not only going to be actions, it's going to be the disposition of our heart. Now that's true for Christians. But what about for those who don't believe, then? How are they to go to heaven? If we say that that's possible, and yet we say works aren't the things that are going to get us there, then how is it possible for those who aren't Christians, since they can't have that disposition of heart, how is it possible for them to and go to heaven, to be saved? And I think... Because we hadn't dug deeper into that, that's what brought about the idea that it's impossible. Because if works can't save us, only the relationship, then if you don't have the relationship, it's impossible to be saved outside the church. And I think for that's where the discussion stopped for millennia, I mean, in the, in the history of the church. Also because for a huge swath of time, until we basically discovered America, and realized how many people there are in China and India, we just didn't, there wasn't anyone who we thought was in that place. Like there was, we thought that the gospel had reached the ends of the world. And so until we found out the world was a way bigger place, that discussion wasn't even necessary for a a large swath of time. But I think, so we'll come back to non-believers in a second because we can sort of work our way out. For... A Muslim. I mean, when you think about like the world, Islam is, I think, slightly larger than Catholicism now. So there's something like 1.3 billion Muslims in the world. So it's not larger than Christianity as a whole, but that's a massive swath of humanity. That's Islam. How is a Muslim person to come to salvation? though they don't believe in the fullness of the gospel and Jesus Christ, the incarnate God. What the document says, there's a whole portion on on Muslims uh, and and their relationship to God. And then there's there's a a good uh, paragraph in here also from Benedict in Verbum Domini. And the church has grappled with this a lot, actually. First of all, just like what Islam is, and we're not going to get into that because um, there's a lot of just scholarly debate to have there as well, which isn't necessarily fruitful for us um, in this particular context. But just, just a few highlights from it. It says, Muslims acknowledge a common creator God. And though we'd have different distinction, like different ideas on the attributes of God in terms of which attributes matter. Or I would say probably that Islam has, they believe in the same God. That's clear. One creator God. They're monotheists through and through. And being monotheists, strict monotheists, they're going to necessarily have a different idea of who God is because they don't believe in the Trinity. And what that what that ends up being is the, the, the main attribute of God is not love. Now, 
because a, a Muslim can say that God can love. God is capable of love. Of course, he's God. He's infinite. But they would never say something like God is love. Because if God is solitary, if, if there's only one God and there's not a relationship of love within the Trinity that's existed for all of eternity, then God was not even, like love was not an action of God until creation. So it's not something that God's been doing in all eternity. It's something that God gives to us, his servants. So that's not at the core of who God is as much as something like justice and truth and power. So those, that om, omniscient, omnipotent, those attributes are more at the core of who God is for a Muslim. And so therefore, that's the way in which we relate to him more concretely than love and mercy and those things. And so there's just an emphasis on different attributes, which brings about a different relationship. It's still, we'd still acknowledge that that's the same God. So the, uh, that, lead, that has implications in the political order, in the, the way that we live out our lives. And so we're going to have conflict with them theologically. But there's, in, in paragraph 16, it does say this. And, and so this would apply, I'd say, to Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, those other sort of major world religions. It says, those also can attain salvation who through no fault of their own do not know the gospel of Christ or his church, yet sincerely seek God and moved by his grace, strive by their deeds to do his will as is known to them through the dictates of conscience. So if you're, it is eminently possible for a Muslim or a Hindu or a Buddhist to follow God as they know them and to not and to have a, a, a conscience that's been formed by the truths that are available there, many of which are true, and to follow that well. When you get when you get to a point where your conscience, which is given to you by God, contradicts some maybe radicalized teaching of one of those of one of those uh, religions, and you go against your conscience and follow that, then we get into a murkier area, which we're going to have to leave to the Lord to decide that. Because, so say like a radical form of Islam, where you have, I mean, terrorist groups that are radicalized forms of Islam. There's, it seems difficult to think of someone entering into that without their conscience, at least in the very beginning, uh, sort of being pricked by some of the things they're asked to do. So then you get into difficult areas. But I also know Muslims and uh, I've never met, I haven't met very many, I've met a couple Hindus who are authentically, sort of like authentically beautiful. I just haven't met a lot, honestly. But like a Buddhist or a, or a Hindu or a Muslim who is, who is authentically following the truths that are given to them, um, and have not been presented with the gospel in a compelling way. I'm not going to say not not at all, because I mean, how many times was I presented with the gospel before I actually 
came around. And, and also, we can be presented with, presented with the gospel in a way that's not compelling at all. So the literal saying that Jesus Christ is your Savior isn't enough for almost anyone. So if by no fault of their own, they live their full life and die in good conscience, we're confident that the Lord's going to... I mean, we're merciful. We, we think that that's possible. And we're infinitely less merciful than God. So just think, think of that. Like, God is infinitely more merciful than us and infinitely more capable of bringing about salvation than we are. And if we think that, then who are we to say that God cannot do that? There, I guess before we have an overarching discussion, we'll move on to um, a little bit further along with atheism. So someone who doesn't believe in God at all. I have a friend who is, uh, I think at this point in his life, he might say more agnostic, but for a long time, he was a sort of serious atheist. And yet, even, you know, he, he went to MIT for a grad program and chose, instead of pursuing his, his PhD in engineering at MIT, which he had the opportunity to do, which basically guarantees you're going to be a millionaire, he chose to do social work at MIT, which seems like a weird place to go for a social work degree, but he did it. And I think the reason was to do so, sort of like structural community organizing. So it was still heavily engineering, but he's like, I'm going to go rebuild New Orleans was his goal, uh, since it still, for some reason, hasn't been rebuilt after, <laughs> after Katrina, which is crazy. That whole portions are still sort of flooded. I mean, so th won't get into that. He went and did that despite not even believing in God. And so he chose to follow a deep call of his conscience in pursuing that. And, and even by his own sort of like reasoning, didn't really know why. And I think in a very real way, someone who's following that is is following the promptings of the Lord and the Holy Spirit without knowing it. They're living a life that is good, very good, according to a standard that they don't even really believe. Like, he couldn't justify why that was good. He couldn't make a reasonable argument why that was good, and yet he did it anyways. Which is beautiful, but that's an example of someone who, even though they don't believe explicitly in God, is walking the road of salvation. Now that brings about a problem that many of my, that I'd say many of my Protestant friends would raise, which is, are you saying then that someone who's an atheist or even a Buddhist or even a Muslim or a Hindu can win their salvation by works when we as Christians know that we cannot win our salvation by works. That's a conundrum, because I'm basically saying that what my friend, who's an atheist, is doing is putting him on the road to salvation, when I would never say anything like that about myself. I couldn't go and do social work for the rest of my life and just be saved because I did that when I don't know, when I'm not in relationship with God. Why can he do that? Uh, does that 
What, how would you answer that? That's the, that's the question of salvation outside the church. If salvation is not a matter of works, how can we say that those outside the church can be saved? Put it in the hands of God, yeah. I mean, to a certain extent, we have to do that. But is there any... I, I like to change I'll show you my faith. Yeah, so the, the, the works are a manifestation of faith, even if they're not concretely aware of it? Okay. Sure, yeah. So they are following God according to who they think he is. So there's a relationship there, even if it's not... The, yeah, even if it's not maybe the fullness. Sure. I think often the easy way to address that is just to create There was no church. Sure. There was no church. There was no baptism. So Abraham didn't have Yeah. I mean, the law had been written because it didn't have to say the law. Was he in heaven? Moses' relationship with God was quite a bit different than, than David's, but um, none of those three knew Christ. None of those three were baptized. Um, yet, right, yet, the scriptures say Abraham, all those who did not know Christ are manifested in the New Testament as being in heaven. So, the scriptures stand and support this church's sure. church position that those who do not know Christ were not baptized and who surrendered themselves in some way to the will of the Lord yeah. are saved. But in this instance, they do know. Your friend, salvation may have been the last thing on his mind. Yeah. Well, it had to be if you can agree. Sure. And, and interesting, so in the I mean, Paul makes an interesting argument about Abraham in particular, that Abraham was saved by faith, not by his works, which is, I mean, that complicates it with the Jewish history in particular. But it is, it is clear that in the Old Testament, at least, the, there was a certain obedience that brought about salvation, obedience to what God is asking you to do. And, and, and there is a relationship there. So I certainly think with, with other world religions, religions, we can say that they're entering into relationship with God insofar as they, as they know who God is. Like they're entering into a relationship with God in a concrete way through the dictates of their conscience, bringing them uh, and the, the gospel in which they've been given. So whatever truths they've been given, they're following them and as much as possible. It's like saying... I guess you could say, compare it to like the history of mathematics, is, was, you know, Albert Einstein a better mathematician than Newton, who was a better mathematician than, uh, you know, Descartes. You can't necessarily say that, that one is a greater, has a greater mind for mathematics than the previous one. It's just that they have all the materials of the previous one to work with. Would Descartes have invented the calculus instead of Newton if they would have switched positions? Maybe. Descartes might have had the capabilities to do that, but he didn't have the, the truths available to him already that 
Newton had because Newton was building upon Descartes' you know, axioms that he had put forward. And so in many ways, like the Buddhist or the Hindu or the Muslim don't have available to them the full truths of the faith that we do. So we ought to be able to enter deeper into relationship with God if we know more about him. It has nothing to do with our personal character necessarily. And so you could say maybe of the atheist that the only... The only relationship to God that's available to them is their experience of goodness through their actions, their conscience. Their conscience is the only voice of God that they've heard to this point. Everyone has a conscience. And so my buddy who's living his life as closely as he can according to the draw, the pull of his conscience is hearing the voice of God insofar as he knows it and is entering into that insofar as is possible. That's the only truth, sort of divine truth that's been given to him is, you could say, natural law, the law that's written on our hearts, written on every person's heart by God. And he knows those laws call him to not, you know, enter into some high-fly engineering job that's going to make him tens of millions of dollars, but instead enter into, you know, community organizing, which is in many ways the sort of priesthood of the secular world, you know, so the, uh, um, that's, that's what he's being drawn to, and he's followed that. So in so far as that is possible for him, he has entered into, until he hears more of the gospel and is convinced, the deepest possible relationship with God that's available to him. And so I, the argument on the the possibility of salvation for atheists is that if they follow their conscience and serve in a selfless way in this world, which is what our conscience does draw us to do, then that's the then that is, in a sense, a form of entering into relationship with God. We see it in Matthew 25, which is a which is a mysterious passage, when Jesus says to those, you know, he says to the the sheep on his right, he says. You know, you clothed me when I was naked. You gave me food when I was hungry. You visited me when I was in prison. And all of them, their answer is, what? When did, when did that happen? They don't know who Jesus is. And they did those things. And, and he says, whatever you did to the least of these, you did for me. That is, he's not talking to a group of Christians when he's, when he's saying that. That's why the, the fathers always interpreted that as the judgment of the nations, the judgment of those who aren't, who have not heard the gospel. They have followed their, with the law that was written on their hearts and served the poor, fed the hungry, all that. And they've, insofar as doing that, they have actually been following the Lord, though they didn't know it. And then the other ones, which is tough, you didn't do all those things. And they say, when did we not do those things? We didn't even, we don't even know you. He said, well, whatever you didn't do for the least of these, you didn't do for me. And that is, in many ways, the, the Lord impelling us to preach the gospel. So the, the natural inclination when we, when we get these teachings is perhaps to say, well, then what's the point of evangelizing? Because everyone can be saved. 
And I would answer that with, if, I would answer that with, like, myself, I guess. If I had not come to know the fullness of the gospel, I would not be living the life that my buddy, who's, you know, trying to rebuild New Orleans, is living. I would have gone to dental school because dental school makes them, you know, as a dentist, I could make the most money with the least amount of work. I could, you know, get all the toys that I wanted. I could live a pretty easy life. Uh, and and, and in, in many ways, the life that I had envisioned as the good life was the most selfish. I mean, it wasn't like evil. It was just indifferent to everyone around me. So like, I, I wouldn't probably have been actively doing evil things, but I wouldn't have been actively doing good things. I mean, so, so the, uh, and I think that's the typical millennial, the typical millennial life. It's like, I'm going to delay marriage as long as possible because marriage is hard. I'm going to get a job that pays the most for the least amount of work. I'm going to probably just party hard and hook up as much as possible in my younger years because it's not going to have too much of a devastating effect on me personally uh, as long as I get it out of the way younger, you know, sow my wild oats. I'm going to, uh, you know, like buy as many toys as I can. I'm going to spend all my money on myself plus 10% beyond the money that I actually have. You know, that's the average American thing. 10%, you spend 10% more than you have. Uh, and, and that's really... And then maybe around 32, I'll try to look for a partner um, and maybe have a kid. Because that's sort of culturally what's still expected. Uh, and if you don't do that, at a certain point, you start to look weird. So the, that's, that's sort of the, that's the millennial lifestyle. And that, in many ways, is, I mean, that is not selfless love. So that, that example of my buddy who's, sort of the anomaly of the people I know who don't believe in God, is not the norm. The norm is, at least, I mean, when we just look at our culture and look at the sort of values of our culture today, if someone's conscience is formed by the mainstream culture, they're probably going to end up sort of radicalized in one direction or another, and both of those radical norms, the, like the far right and the far left, are not lives that are conducive to selfless love. They're both sort of uh, bitter and and uh, alienated from half of our society. The one half's alienated from the other half. They both lend themselves toward hatred and and uh, sort of conspiracy theories and all these different things. They don't lend themselves toward selfless love. Our, Maybe 30, 40 years ago, our culture would have done that. Like just being a part of the culture would have would have formed your conscience in a in a good way. But today, not so. Um, at least I don't see that amongst the young people that I know who aren't pursuing a relationship with God. Usually, that um, it, they're just easily radicalized in one way or another. So the 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 need for evangelization is just as dire even knowing that salvation is possible outside the church. Now, given the, the dire circumstances, 
To whom less is given is less expected? Yes, I think so. So the Lord can still work that out. Um, For us whom more is given, much more is expected in that sense. Uh, So I would say, in general, theologically, this this is an interesting discussion. But in action, all we need to know is that we are expected to evangelize. Let God work out the salvation of those who don't end up hearing the gospel because he's perfect. We don't need to work that out because we're not the ones who decide anyways. But what we need to do is bring as many souls to the Lord as possible because that's the place where we know there's grace. And we know there's all the things that we need to become holy. Uh, because we're, we have so many things in the church that just stop us from falling into all of the traps of our culture that lead to hatred and bigotry and all the different things that that the Lord doesn't that the Lord calls us not to be a part of. So the church is, in many ways, the true sort of ark, where uh, the commands of the Lord give us the truths that we need in which to navigate a, a world that's difficult to navigate. So, anyways, that's I think as far as I don't know. That's as far as I can go into that. Uh, sure. Sure. I mean, yeah, that's that's yeah, just that we I think our having the church can give us that confidence because because as a as a Baptist church in Missoula, you can't realistically believe that the grace of your church is so huge and manifest worldwide that it is going to bring about um, that any truth is the truth of your Baptist church. Whereas in the Catholic Church, because because the Catholic Church is I mean, because we believe it is the fullness of the truth and that it cannot contradict with any truth and that any relationship with God, insofar as it's authentic, is possible by means of the grace of the church, we can actually just be infinitely more confident. And there's something beautiful in that. Like, we just, we, it's, it's such a huge vision of who God is. Uh, I think there's still the conundrum in every Christian church outside the Catholic Church, the conundrum of, you know, we can't, our works can't bring about salvation. And that point is so strong because it was the core of, at the core of the break from the Catholic Church. That point is so strong that the relationship being ends up being all that matters. And so you can't see beyond an explicit relationship with God to the possibility of any salvation. If it's not explicit and it's not with Jesus Christ, as we understand him, salvation is not possible. Whereas I think the vision of the church is so much bigger than that. Um, it's, not that it's, it's not that it's smaller. It's that it's bigger. That like God, we see the ways in which God manifests outside of the Catholic church and Christian churches, and, and, we can, and therefore we can see even beyond that to the Muslim, Hindu, and, and Buddhist, and 
and even, you know, like any of the, even spiritualist or what do you call it, like uh, just like general spirituality with forces and energies and that sort of thing. Um, that's still all possible. And I think we take the conscience. Uh, John Henry Newman, who converted from Anglicanism to Catholicism in the 18th century, no, yeah, 18th century, wrote a lot on the conscience. And the conscience as, the, as very much the voice of God in every human heart. And now, it's not infallible. As we, as we know, our consciences aren't. Um, because we can suppress certain parts of our conscience very easily. But a well-formed conscience is going to lead us to the Lord. And the Lord gave it to us, so he knows the way in which it's going to operate. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's certainly not easy to see, to see these things at work. Uh, and so therefore, I think we still have to, uh, I guess, we're still impelled to, to evangelize because, because of how difficult the world can be for those who are trying to navigate it. I'd say, I'd say, yeah, much more so today uh, than, than in previous eras. But we, uh, it does, it's not, it's not impossible. We, we just know that what we call it is the ordinary means is the church, the sacraments. Those are the ordinary means of salvation. The extraordinary means, so beyond that, God can do whatever he wants. It's just, he's only made the ordinary means available to us, uh, we can entrust the rest to him, but the road to salvation isn't easier, but it's more joyful if we know the truth. You know, like, um, I'm certainly more joyful now that I'm in the church than I was when I was waiting the abyss of trying to find out what was true outside the church. And, uh, and then just to be humble and realize that even though we have the gift of the church, it doesn't mean we're going to live it. Like it doesn't it doesn't mean we're not going to fall into the same thorny uh, biases or or things that everyone else falls into. We're we're just as much a part of our culture as anyone else, and therefore we're just as susceptible to falling into those non-truths. It's just when I do, I'm so quickly checked by the gospel. You know, I fall into prejudices against certain groups. And then I hear the gospel the next day in Mass, and it immediately calls me on it. Whereas, where's that voice in the, in the life of a person who's not in the church? Uh, how, often, how often is someone in our culture coming into contact with people they disagree with on significant issues on a daily... Like, they're just, that's not happening anymore. So, like, I... In, in the Catholic Church, we come into contact with people we disagree with on serious issues, culturally and politically, all, all the time. Because the Catholic Church is here comes everybody. You know, we've always said that. Like, everybody is in the church. And therefore, like, and that matters in our daily life. Whereas, it's so easy to sort of section ourselves off into a, a, the echo chamber of whatever our beliefs happen to be at the time, that... There's no growth happening, and, and, our, and our consciences are going to be hardened into one particular bias or something um, if we don't have 
The gospel is calling us out all the time. And so there's something beautiful about that. And that's, I think, why the road, and, and if, especially if we're praying, because the Lord's going to do that on the level of the heart, not even on the level of, like, you know, political or whatever. He's going to do that in, on the level of our intentions. He's going to say, he's going to point, us, point out to us all the ways in which we're not only, not only our vices, but our imperfections. Which, like, who's going to call us out on small imperfections? No one. Maybe your spouse. You know, like, that's maybe. Yeah, or, or your parents or your siblings, you know, your family. Um, but, like, very, very seldom are we going to get called out on that, where the Lord is going to always keep pushing us toward that perfection that he's calling us to. Um, so that's, that's the, the beauty of the church and why our, that's why we strive to bring everyone into the fold of the church, because that's just... That's a life we can't get anywhere else. Um, but we're six minutes over our time again. And we are going to push into the rest of this document in the next one because um, I'll try to make it quick next time. But I think uh, um, not next week, yeah, following week. Uh, but let's say a glory be and call our night. Glory be to the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be world without end. 